Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. As always, I am your host, Scott Lentz, joined by my friend and drinking buddy, Christian Ubius. And Christian, I would like to wish you a very happy the WGA strike is over day. Oh my goodness. Let's just segue right into oh those opening industry discussion topics that I just mentioned. Great day for the film industry. It's, it is, it's, 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 I rarely ever post stuff on, well, I rarely ever post stories that are about things that are going on in the world. Um, I posted saying, I'm not posting this because I'm happy, but because they did the right thing despite the fact that they had to suffer for it. And now myself as a writer, if it ever comes down to me, no matter how much money I am making, I want to be able to say I still risked it because they were also fighting for new writers to get a chance to step up. Absolutely. I think one very loudly stated objective of both the writer's strike and the still ongoing actor's strike is trying to make way for the middle class and working class actor, just making those career paths again. Obviously, it'd be fantastic if there are folks who never become famous, but can work in Hollywood and make a, a decent, honest living. And it's, yeah. it's great that uh, the WGA, especially as their terms were released today as we're recording this, were able to ensure, uh, really shore up the bottom of the the ladder, shall we say. Certainly some wins for the folks at the top of the ladder as well, of course, but also a lot gained for working class writers. And uh, I don't reveal this to the listeners, some of the things that I do in my day-to-day -day have to do with... All your crimes you commit. And all my crimes that I commit have to do with, yes. Personal phone conversations with President Joe Biden. Um, um, yes, yes. Yeah. Joey's doing well. You're helping Hunter Biden... Keep his laptop away from all those government officials. Yes, the thing is, is that I also have um, Ivanka's number on speed dial. You know, I'm working Gotta both, both sides. sides. Gotta, Gotta play, play both, both sides. sides. It's, it's tough out there. <laughs> no, but a good chunk of my life had been disrupted by it. Like, and I'm not upset that it was... I'm not upset that it had to be disrupted, you know? But I, I am happy that some things are going to look slightly brighter and more positive starting... Uh, starting honestly tomorrow yeah absolutely uh, and just so people are aware of how recent this is um i actually picked you up today christian and we're recording at my place for the first time which we is are. Fun. and it's tuesday september 26th when i parked outside your you know where you were to pick you up the news had pretty much just dropped from the wjos yeah. twitter account and the strike ends at 1201 six hours from now so yeah, just incredibly great timing is obviously we can get into this and bring it up and mention it, but also just really an exciting time for the film industry. It's great to see that the writers were able to get, uh, from what I can tell, a lot of what they were fighting for. That includes protections uh, for AI, that includes better payments from streaming services, that includes transparency of data, not to us, the average Joes, but to the Writers Guild. They will be able to see some of those streaming numbers and therefore have more data to fight on behalf of writers working on these projects and arguing for their, you know, their residuals. And mm -hmm. there's more, obviously, there, there's more to that we'll learn about in the coming and, days, I'm sure. And the actors are still on strike. The actors are still also fighting for it. But hopefully this is now also paving a way forward for actors to have more leverage as they're also fighting for fair, equal compensation to just be paid what it is that they're worth and to not have AI 
tried to pick up some things, less so of this. We're going to pay you 50 bucks, and now we can use your voice and likeness for the rest of the time. Absolutely. You know, I, I saw something on social media the other day where Rachel Sennett, who we talked about mm -hmm. in Bottoms earlier this month, had posted a picture for her birthday, I think, and she was doing something in her kitchen, and someone commented on that and is like, this is funny, but why does her apartment look like she's some, you know, some broke act, like broke yep. person or whatever. And the person that I follow comments on that saying, this is why there's an actor strike right now where Rachel Sennett is someone who has made appearances in a number of high profile movies over the last couple of years is clearly on the rise. And she's still living in a small apartment like the rest of us out here in Los Angeles. So yeah, great to see the writers win and hopefully the actors are next as well as some of the other strike actions happening out here in the entertainment with, industry. With the visual effects artists also unionizing yeah. with um, the video game industry saying, you know what, actually, companies, you're not paying us fairly. So it is, it, it, it's good to see that there is hopefully going to be a domino effect on the positive of yeah. union after union being able to get better, honestly, rights being treated yeah. like a human should be treated. I, I actually know someone who works in Hollywood, won't say which studio, but works with the animation departments at a major Hollywood studio. And the National Labor Relations Board also ruled in favor of production coordinators, supervisors, and managers of this particular studio to unionize with IATSE as well. So yeah, a lot of action going on right now, which again is just good for the, the average common person, <laughs> which uh, I think will also result uh, in good projects. Like when you have a, a happy, healthy uh, workforce, you have people who are not freaking out about their bills, they're able to invest their time and their energy into their work. So, or you know what? Should be exciting. Maybe it'll be a piece of shit. And guess what? At least the people who worked on that piece of shit will be paid well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm certain that we will still get bad TV shows and bad movies, but <laughs> hopefully at least the workforce and the people making those TV shows and movies are not living paycheck to paycheck and, and absolutely struggling. Hey, beauty is pain. Beauty is pain, Christian. What, what a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> Now let's get into our topic for today. As folks who have been listening to the show know, we recently wrapped up a monthly rotation with the modern high school movie looking at Lady Bird and Bottoms and Booksmart. Said that a little bit out of order, unfortunately. And we had a very good time talking about our top five high school movies last week with Keenan Culler. Very fun discussion and great to have him in person on the show for the very first time. And we had an extra week in the calendar. So we figured we talked modern high school movies. Why not go get a blast from the past? Talk about one of Christian's favorite high school movies of all time, The Breakfast Club. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is John Hughes' seminal high school film released in 1985 and still considered one of the best high school movies. Ever. I wouldn't. And, and here's, here's a crazy thing. I don't know if it's considered his seminal. I really do think this is on equal footing with Ferris Bueller. Yeah, it's it's this time period. Because in, in the span yeah. of a couple of years, he makes his directorial debut with 16 Candles in 1984. He thought it was going to be The Breakfast Club, but he actually makes 16 Candles first. And then makes The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off concurrently, releasing Breakfast Club in 85, Ferris Bueller in 86. 86. And so you have this period in the mid-80s where... The Brat Pack is forming, <laughs> and all of these young actors are becoming stars. People like, like in The Breakfast Club, Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall, Emilio Estevez, and other folks like Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, James Spader, some Home of these Alone, other 
is 91, 92. Home Alone comes later in 1990, yeah. And that's a movie that he wrote and produced but didn't direct. Uh, but still, obviously, a, an incredibly famous movie that <laughs> comes from his mind. Wait, National Lampoon's Vacation, if I'm not mistaken. There was another one. Did he do something with Stuart Little, or am I just making that up in my head? Well, there was a Stuart Little movie, but I don't think he worked on it. You know, I for, I oh, you know who did actually work on the Stuart Little movie? Who? Um, and Shyamalan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if, I'm not sure how familiar people are out there with John Hughes. Obviously, he has some incredibly famous movies to his name, most of which we've mentioned already, but... Um, he worked as a director for a short time, obviously, making eight films, many of which focused on the teenage experience, but not all of which. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Very notably, not about teenagers, but about Steve Martin and John Candy. Exactly. <laughs> um, but Christian, I am curious, before we get to The Breakfast Club, whether movies he directed or movies that he wrote, what is your general connection to John Hughes? And if you did any homework, feel free to mention it. Or just if you have any other movies that he made, feel free to throw them out. Like, I'm just curious how you relate to the guy. Okay. I'm looking at his filmography. And this is going to be equal parts movies that he directed and movies that he just wrote or produced. Many of these are household names, honestly. And I watched growing up, probably on Disney Channel. For example... Do you remember Beethoven about dog? <laughs> I never saw Beethoven, but I distinctly remember some of the VHSs we had yes. growing up. They would play the trailer for whatever Beethoven sequel <laughs> is coming out around the movie that we were watching. So I never actually saw Beethoven myself, but I, I'm aware of it. What about the live-action 101 Dalmatians? We had that VHS tape, and I, I'm sure I watched it at least once, but I can't tell you a single thing about it. Shout out to Glenn Close, who played Cruella de Vil in the, hey, the original doing, Disney live-action remake. The original Disney live-action remakes. Of course, Home Alone and Home Alone 2, which I know that I watched, especially during Christmas time. This was when ABC Family had their countdown to 25 Days of Christmas and then their 25 Days of Christmas countdown. So those two were staples there. I don't really have a strong connection to Home Alone, as I sort of realized. I... Started watching it with my family. I forget which Christmas it was. It might have been a couple of years ago. And we only got through maybe like 45 minutes of it before everybody just got too tired and went to bed. But I was seeing so many scenes where I said to myself, man, I just remember this at all. <laughs> and I really think maybe I saw each of those movies maybe once growing up. Or maybe I just was like channel surfing and they were on at Christmas time. And I watched a few scenes. So it's weird because they're so iconic and I barely... I barely know them at all. Like, I, I wouldn't say Home Alone is one of my favorite Christmas movies because I don't know if I've seen it all the way through. And then uh, I, re I remember watching The Breakfast Club once. I don't know. I think it was in high school. I, my, I had just recently gotten Netflix. And I remember thinking, huh, maybe I should watch this movie. I watched it and then I started to watch Grease afterward and then thought, man, Grease sucks. And then I turned it off. <laughs> I hate her, Christian. 100%. <laughs> doesn't suck. <laughs> and then Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I am trying to remember when I saw this for the first time, but it must have been, I, I think it was a freshman in college when I saw it. Now, every single title that I have mentioned holds some value and significance to a lot of people our age, a lot of people 20 years older than us as well. Yeah, John Hughes, I mean, he's had a lot of staying power where his movies were really important when they came out. And The Breakfast Club 
was really lauded at the time for being this honest and authentic portrayal of teenage emotions when compared to some of the other teenage-oriented movies coming out at that time, which were either like sex comedies or would have a lot of like juvenile humor, where The Breakfast Club isn't like devoid of talk about sex or, or you know, juvenile jokes or whatever, but... There's a lot of talk about sex in The Breakfast Club. There's a lot of talk Club. about sex, but it also is just a much more, I suppose, realistic depiction of teenagers at that time, even if half of the cast is uh, well into their 20s by the time they're making this movie. And I think it that's partly why it has aged so well, even if now it's almost like a time capsule as you look back at what it was like to be a teenager in the mid-80s, it still holds that value and people can still relate to these characters all these many years on, where I think especially maybe John Bender, who's Judd Nelson's character in The Breakfast Club, is less relatable, but um, characters like Anthony Michael Hall's Brian has all kinds of fans when <laughs> people look at his journey in the movie and people are able to connect to these stories even if they aren't growing up in the Midwest suburbs of a Midwestern city or they have no frame of reference for what it was like to live in the 80s. I mean, I was born 10 years after this movie came out, so obviously I don't, but I still can relate in some ways. I will say when I was thinking back to the characters because I had forgotten most of their names before watching this movie again, I remember, I couldn't remember Allison's name, but I remember that she was Basket Case. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't remember um, Andrews, but I knew that he was... Wait, Andrew's the nerd, right? Andrew's the jock. I remember the jock. I couldn't remember Andrew. I, I don't... I, I, I guess I still forget what... Let me look up the nerd's name. The nerd... That's, that's Brian. Brian, I remembered as the nerd. I remember uh, the criminal, and I remember the princess. And so it, it's also, it's something that's so, so hard to do is create archetypes, not just, you know, go into them, but literally create them. He gave those titles to them. And now it's, it's, I mean, we have seen countless, a high school movie, which is, you know, trying to like pit the, or trying to unite the popular person and the not popular person, which this is where much of that, or at least this is the perfect fusion of it, even though there are obviously high school movies before this. Yeah, and The Breakfast Club isn't, it's not like shying away from these stereotypes, but it creates real human characters, maybe belying some of my thoughts on the movie before we get to our actual review, but creates real human characters out of the stereotypes. And I think you can look at other John Hughes movies some of which I know you and I agree are not very good. Like, you and I both have given very bad reviews to Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink is not... <laughs> the other oh John Hughes-Molly Ringwald collaboration. That's a movie that I really disliked when yeah. I ended up watching it. Uh, or something like Mr. Bomb, which stars one of your dads, Michael Keaton. 100%. Uh, and th that entire movie, obviously there's still some charms to it with Michael Keaton in the starring role. Terry Garr is very good in it as well, but... It's based on this incredibly outdated, like, the idea is that the, the, the dad gets fired, the mom ends up finding a job before he can find a new job, and so he stays at home while she goes and works his job, which comedy ensues from there, and it, it's just so funny that, obviously, for a lot of families, that was the norm. Dad goes to work, mom stays at home, and upending that setup was just grounds for a movie <laughs> and it, for a Lone Star song, if you know that country song. But Wait, it, it followed this idea also that men 
just don't know how to take care of children. There, and, there's a whole scene in that movie. I wish you had seen it because there's a whole scene where he goes to the grocery store. Okay. <laughs> not only are they trying to make play up the fact that he has no idea who he's doing, but other moms as, are as like men have never been to a grocery men store. Men have never been to a grocery store. Yeah, and, of course, no, no, yeah, yeah. and other moms are coming up and like, do you need help? <laughs> like pal. And he knocks over, I think, three different, like, big stacks of cans or fruits or whatever. Like, he loses his kid. He makes a mess. It's just like, did this guy not shop for himself when, when he, he was, was in college? college? Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and that, that's the problem with some of these movies. Uncle Buck is another one that I watched for the first time doing some homework, which I liked more than Mr. Mom. But it's also like, how did John Candy's character even survive to his 40s if this is how is it, he's isn't, living? Isn't that also the premise? No, no, no. It's not the premise, but also the whole, uh, the movie Three Men and a Baby, which is like, uh, man, can men, do men know what children are? Uh, okay, so Three Men and a Baby, I I know that I watched that when I was younger. I watched, I had a friend who like his family really liked that movie, so we watched it. I watched it once upon a time at yeah. some point. And I think the comedy there is obviously that these like three bachelors end up, oh no, he didn't do Three Men and a Baby. He no, did he Baby's Day Out. He did do Baby's Day Out. Which is, that that's, it's still the movie that I had a friend who liked it and he saw it, but it's like, Baby goes, I don't even, I can't remember, like the baby. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's. Let's talk about this movie. Yeah, let's talk about Breakfast Club. Because obviously, with all that we're saying about John Hughes, all of his ups and his downs, The Breakfast Club is is an iconic film and has very much endured to this day. I watched it on my Criterion Collection Blu-ray. It's part of that collection. The only film of his to be included so far, at least. And it's still on Netflix right now. I know it's not always there, but it's you can... It's leaving at the end of this week. So there you go. when you listen to this episode, you will have one more day to watch it on Netflix. <laughs> go watch The Breakfast Club, folks. And okay, let's let's get this out of the way. Um, I haven't even logged it on Letterboxd yet. Five stars. Yeah, it's it was. If folks remember, it was your number two film behind Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. So John Hughes looms large in your consideration of high school movies. Those two movies do. Those two movies. <laughs> Pretty in pink, unfortunately. Yes, <laughs> wouldn't make the cut. But I'm. Going to assume you enjoyed the movie. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And so I I I it's it's one of those where you know how one of your reservations when we covered the movie Fences is that it felt like a play and that it felt like we um as much as Denzel is is very, very I, I believe very competent as a director within that one location, you could kind of feel that it was one location. Whereas here, we know that it's one location, and yet somehow the world is also happening. That takes so much skill to do. It is it, it is staged like a play. Um, there are seven, eight characters. There are probably eight characters total that we are following. I mean, there's, um, there's five main characters, and then two grown-up characters. Two grown-up like, characters. Who pop in every now and again. And then, yeah, like some of the kids' parents, you yeah. see them, but... Basically, you only see them at the beginning and the end. And yes. Now, man, you get a distinct sense of everything going on behind every single one of these characters. And it takes a while for them to still, like, build the interactions and the chemistry between all of them. And then just pour out their heart and souls. And sometimes they can't even vocalize everything that's going on. Bender ain't good with words. I mean, in a way, Bender's actually very good. I kind of disagree with that. No, no, no. I, I think that the... Well, okay. That 
it, he cannot vocalize is what I'm trying to say. He doesn't know how to vocalize everything that is going on. He, the, his dialogue is perfect. Is I'm saying his dialogue is perfect, but he in and of himself is hiding his emotions. Of course. Yes. He is certainly playing a character. He, yes. has, he has found a way to survive the situation. And, and again, we see that with all five of the characters. Yes. Where they're all the basket case, the jock, the nerd, the princess, and the criminal. Like, they are... That is a key theme of the movie, is, is how these labels get assigned and how each of these individuals lives out that label or rejects it and tries to upend it. So before we do get into our full review and unpack more of, especially your thoughts on this one being that it is a five-star film for you, just some quick quick details for folks who either have not seen The Breakfast Club or have not seen it in some time. Written and directed by John Hughes and John Hughes alone, his second feature after 16 Candles, which also starred Molly Ringwald, who mm -hmm. is the one of the five main characters here, along with Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, and Ali Sheedy. And Paul Gleason plays there, the teacher who is observing them, um, Mr. Vernon. Of course, follows these five students as they show up for Saturday school, ending up in Saturday detention for one reason or another, where they must sit and be quiet and write an essay as punishment but of course because there's a 90 minute movie here they start talking to each other and getting up into all sorts of hijinks often to annoy mr vernon or to bond with each other uh some just final quick thoughts about it huge box office success it was made for only a million dollars and it brought back 51 million dollars mm -hmm. at the global box office it was one of the movies credited with creating the Brat Pack, which I mentioned earlier, but was this group of young actors who appeared in a lot of these teen or college-related movies in the 80s who would see these huge peaks of their uh, career fame in the 80s and is still to this day considered not only one of the best movies of its era, but one of the best high school movies ever made. And depending on where you look, one of the best movies ever, just like <laughs> flat out, one of the best movies ever made. Um, there's a, there was a list cited on its, um, yeah, so Empire Magazine ranked at number 369 on the top 500 greatest movies of all time. The New York Times included on their best 1,000 movies ever list. Entertainment Weekly declared it the number one high school movie of all time. So, yes, certainly a legacy here for the Rex Club. Okay. Ali Sheedy appears in a, another actually pretty important 1980s movie for me. Um, starring Matthew Broderick, and that is War Games. Indeed she does. The year before this, or two years before this. And War Games was an Academy Award-nominated movie. It, it's just kind of wild. The, I mean, honestly, the we've already discussed this, my whole thing of like, oh yeah, the athlete is Hispanic was my whole thing last week. I had no idea, but Emilio Estevez, son of Martin Sheen, brother to Charlie Sheen. Yeah, the follow-up on that, they're, they're from Spanish ancestry. So Hispanic, yes. Latino, no. For, for folks out there who are curious, because I can't remember if I, I may have said Latino last week. That's certainly not the right word. But yes, from a Spanish-speaking background. Yes. Emilio Estevez, the son of Martin Sheen. There's apparently some story where somebody insulted Martin Sheen on set and it caused a problem with Emilio Estevez because they didn't know that they were related. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's start talking about this movie. Let's do it. So, Christian, your opening question. I am simply curious. Which of these five characters did you find that you related to the most? Oh, that's hard. 
Um, I mean, I think the easy answer for most people is Bender. And for most people? Okay. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Well, I have... <laughs> I mean... What's surprising about that if is that Bender say, is like the bully of the room who insults basically everybody who's there and sexually harasses Molly Ringwald the entire movie. Well, <laughs> Gets in fights with their teacher. Like, yeah. <laughs> certainly there are relatable elements to him. I don't think he's insane for that, but. He is the man who, it's definitely not Molly Ringwald. Like he, he, he's the dude that can't, fully vocalize and needs to go about elaborate metaphors to say how difficult his life is. And with that, you know the full extent of what he is saying, but he doesn't and he hates to try and showcase vulnerability because he thinks it's a sign of weakness. And that I think is truly relatable for most people. I mean, the guy whose personality I liked most was Emilio Estevez. Is, I mean, Brian's I oh man, I'm not Brian. I, I certainly am Brian. <laughs> so, like what, I mean, maybe that explains a lot of this. Podcast. No, no, no. Like I, I am a nerd, but I, he, I, he, it, it's like they're all clueless. But Brian was just clueless on a whole, I don't know, other level of things. And and, and I, it's it's definitely not Al Allison's. Like not real, but <laughs> Allison is not real. I, okay, I'm going to go with that bender. I mean, bold take, Christian. Very bold take. What is wrong with it? Well, like I said, I mean, I think when you think... Who, who do you think I'm most like? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. That's why I asked you the question. And your your answer, I just wasn't expecting bender. I Granted, I wasn't expecting you to say Molly Ringwald's character, Claire. I wasn't expecting you to say Claire. But I was curious to see what your answer would be. And like I said, with bender, I think what is interesting about him is of these five characters he feels like the most 1980s character he's not really a bully because you don't really get that vibe from him like he's a school bully but you do get the vibe that he is the he's not popular enough to be yeah, a bully not popular he's like the outcast dude he smokes cigarettes he, he also smokes weed he is in the shop class which he, he mentions when brian brings up his shop class grade and you get and the Brian sense that goes, he's, you know what kind of dopes take shop, and he goes, I take, I take shop. Yeah, and, and no, 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 and 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 oh, what 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 was it that he says? Like, does it make me an idiot that I failed shop? And Bender goes, no, it makes you a genius. Uh, his res Brian's response, do you know that without trigonometry we wouldn't have engineering? He goes, without lamps we wouldn't have light. Which yeah. is the best. Comeback, which again, like that's why, I, yeah, that's why I disagree that that Bender. Um, I, I'm sorry, I forget what you said, but where he's been, like he has a way of expressing himself, and he's constantly talking throughout, especially the, the first half lines. of this movie. And yeah, he gets all the best lines. He gets the best lines. The I'm, I'd, who who would you say is your favorite out of these five? I mean, I am probably the most drawn to Brian because I see myself in him the most, but I also really love Anthony Michael performance here. I watched 16 Candles before watching Breakfast Club, and this was re-watching these movies for me, I, but I hadn't seen either of them in well over 10 years. I, I watched them with my parents who, they were in high school or college when these movies came out, so very relevant to them, and they wanted to show them to their kids, of course, and I, being the nerd movie nerd that I am, jumped at that chance, and... 
Um, in 16 Candles, Anthony Michael Hall is playing a much more talkative, still super nerdy character who gets into more hijinks. And here in The Breakfast Club, he's a little more naturalistic, a little more reserved, and still funny in his way. And, and like you, like, I think you sort of identified this, where he is like trying the hardest to fit in in some ways, but doing it extremely unsuccessfully <laughs> at times, where... Bender starts making fun of Claire and, and Andrew for their both belonging to the sort of popular in crowd. He's making fun of the clubs that they're in. And Brian starts chiming in with like, I'm, I'm in the science club. <laughs> and Bender just ignores him. And he says, oh, in the physics club. <laughs> and eventually Bender asks him, you know, what, what do you do in the physics club? Like, well, we sit and talk about physics. Like, well, it's a social club, but a little deranged, but still a social club. And he's trying his best to fit into this crowd of people. He's the one who ends up writing the essay at the end of the movie that gives the, that, the iconic line. Yeah. The, the iconic lines, and which I, I remember that, I, I think I've mentioned this on this podcast before, one of my one of my favorite TV shows of the 2010s and one of my favorite TV shows growing up was Regular Show. And there's one episode specifically where two of the characters, Rigby and Benson, are by their boss told to spend some time together. And I, th I don't know, I think they called the episode The Brunch Club or something like that. And at the end, they write the same essay, except it's just two of them. And it, it, it's for a while, it's like, a, wait, I've seen this before. Breakfast Club. Yep. <laughs> and and all this is one of the best ensembles ever done because all, all of these characters are difficult to try and pull off, to try and write, to for sure act. I mean, Ali Sheedy's character's Alice in the Basket Case is probably the hardest of these characters to do. I mean, she doesn't say anything for the first 45 minutes, minutes of the movie, yeah. 45 minutes, yeah. And then when she starts talking, she talks about how she's a compulsive liar. <laughs> yes. And the, oh, man, everyone else is just, like, looking at her. Oh, this is also the greatest example of how... It is the quote-unquote class weirdo that they give a makeover to who then the school jock falls for as soon as he sees her in the new makeup. It's yeah. incredible. If you if you look at some of the online discourse in present day around The Breakfast Club, it's a lot of people complaining about how, <laughs> how Ali Sheedy had a glow down at the end of this movie <laughs> because she had this like perfect emo look that was ruined by Claire's preppy makeup. <laughs> I, and it's funny because I mean, Ali Sheedy is a very pretty person, and she pulls off the emo look and she pulls off the prep look. But it's just, it's just funny to think about how times and opinions about you know high school looks change. Okay, as as, as someone who may or may not have been called angsty in the past and in present day, I could share stories about how how true or not true that is. Shall we say? Um, Sometimes you don't want to look angsty, you know? So there are times for it, like when I put on the the black marks for the concert, but then after the concert, I need a shower. <laughs> I mean, probably it's good practice to shower after concerts, honestly. But. Yo, you just get so sticky, especially if you're in the pit and I only really go to concerts if I can be standing. It's it's rough out there. Um, so... What's funny about talking about The Breakfast Club is that there is very little plot. The The movie is nicely set up in that you sort of know it begins when they arrive at detention and it will end when they leave detention. And what we have is these characters getting to know each other and bonding over this day, this eight hours of detention. So 
it's kind of nice because we don't really have to talk about like twists and turns of the plot, <laughs> but I think there's also a lot to talk about with just the script and, and how it's structured. It's certainly structured like a play in, in that it's set almost entirely in one room. And yes, they explore the high school a little bit. They go to Bender's locker to get his joint. Um, Mr. Vernon goes and drinks beers with the janitor Carl in the basement of the school. Yo, Mr. Vernon needs to be locked up. <laughs> oh, it, it, this is another, another like, element of its era is teachers who are just, like, so overtly hostile to certain students. But yet when so he funny. has that talk with the janitor and so much actually gets revealed, you basically know everything about why his personality is that way you took this job because you thought it'd be easy you get summers off and then you started working and you realized man you actually need to work and then mr burden says these kids get more and more ignorant every year and then the janitor goes no the kids have stayed the same it's you who's changed and such a such a great moment because it's also, it, if you were to write that in any movie now, it'd be cheesy. But at that time, no, that is the, the ancestor of all of those lines saying, actually, no, yeah. you're the one who has changed. You're going to see it at the source. You're not, you're not getting all of the influences who repeat that line <laughs> like over the next 40 years. Especially because, I mean, I've, 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 when I became a teacher, did I think it would be easy? No. But... Me going into it, teaching during COVID, thinking would be hard. It was worse. <laughs> it was so much harder than I thought it could be. And then, you know, no matter how hard your job is, you it, it's not like I'm going every single day thinking I'm facing death in the eyes. Yeah. But it, it, it's one of those where you are not prepared for how you are to some extent, trying to shepherd around kids who have not fully developed all of their emotions and are going through everything, every single emotion, all at once. Yeah, and I feel like that scene also is almost like the, the like skeleton key to John Hughes's filmography. Not just this movie, but so many of his movies are teen comedies or teen dramas. I mean, we talked about Sixteen Candles and Ferris Bueller, and Pretty in Pink, and now Breakfast Club. Obviously, he had more Home Alone about younger than teens, and even some of his movies like Uncle Buck, which I mentioned, is about John Candy going to watch his niece, nieces and nephew, who are, you know, one of them is a teenager, two of them are not. But so many of his movies are about suburban life, and about teenagers, and about kids, and about youth, really, trying to get by in the world. And that really does feel like one of his mission statements, where obviously not all of his movies were about high schoolers, not all of his movies were even about teenagers, but his mission statement is asking grown-ups like him to recognize that they're the ones that have changed, and these teenagers still have so much, uh, just so much to say, so much going on in their lives, real problems that are worth engaging with and not ignoring, and people like Vernon, who is, uh, again, very domineering and arrogant and pompous um, at one point, he quotes his salary to Bender. <laughs> so if like, like I make thirty thousand dollars a year, which I, I looked it up, and according to the uh, Bureau of Labor, 
Uh, that is using their CPI, uh, imperfect CPI inflation calculator over $80,000 in today's dollars. So very respectable living. But yeah, it's, it's, you have this pompous guy who resents I his teaching I would do job. so many crimes for that amount of money right now. <laughs> you have this pompous guy who hates his teaching job but makes a good living who just doesn't get why these teenagers are so bad these days. And Carla Janda reminds him like, man, they are, they're going through life just like you did. They are going through teenage problems, which you had at the time. There, there is a critique also of John Hughes. His movies are very white. They're extremely white, yes. They're very, very white. Like, even in this high school, all five of these students, I mean, are white slash white adjacent. I mean, look, you are Hispanic if you are from Spain, and Spain is... There's some history that Spain was always considered to be like one of the dirtier European countries, dirty in quotes, because it had a ton of influence because North Africa is to the south of it. And so people would look down at it in history. Welcome to sociology on tap, folks. Exactly. Um, but this, this, this very, all, all of these places are very white. And yet the themes are very universal. I mean, sometimes people look down on on the the lack of diversity in its cast but the the themes are pretty incredible yeah i mean he's able to put in i also listened to a podcast episode about this movie while i was collecting my thoughts on it and uh wesley morris who is a film critic one of the one of the few who's won the pulitzer prize twice for his criticism someone i really twice yeah someone i really enjoy reading and listening to um who currently works for the new york times and he is a black man was talking about this movie and saying that he feels like the whiteness is, it's important because it's mm-hmm. analyzing these white suburban teenagers. And if we were to introduce an element like having one black kid or one Latino kid in there with this room of other white teenagers, it would have introduced an element where they sort of had to talk about that. And if you were to remake The Breakfast Club, he actually said, like, if you're going to do it, like, keep them all white or make them all black, make them all Latino. And and just remove the racial element from it so that they have this sort of, they don't have to... I, identify it, call it out and talk about how like, hey man, like you think your problems are bad? Well, I've been, you know, I've been, had teachers be racist to me and like not having to address that actually helps the movie. Well, I mean, there was a, oh man, there was an episode of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel from this last season where, um, oh man, Susie, Susie is representing a black actor and he was getting a lot of opportunities while the main character, Midge, was not. And he goes, man, he's just getting everything handed to him. He's so lucky. And they were like, do you want to try and be black for a day? You know, and that became the the the, the main thing of introducing race is an entirely complex conversation. Actually, not remaking The Breakfast Club, but something that I think tackles that in an interesting way when you're introducing race, but actually still making it about a completely different race and people of color is emergency the movie that we saw last year really good movie very good movie and uh, we have um a black character who comes from a family of doctors we have a black character who does not and we have a hispanic par- uh, character who is there and he and his cousin he is a much darker skinned hispanic his cousin is much lighter skinned and so it's almost entirely focused on these people of color um that element of race is being introduced, but still also how they are coming from different, different just socioeconomic backgrounds within that race. Right. It, it just, it leaves one thing out to focus on different issues mm-hmm. because with these five characters, 
what comes out over the course of the movie, of course, is that they all have their own honest struggles. And yeah, Bender is like the absolute, like the most asshole-ish asshole that has ever assholed. Um, this might get us the explicit tag <laughs> on Apple Podcasts, but um, he is a jerk. He is cruel to some of the other kids in the room at times. He, like I said, like honestly sexually harasses Claire and... And then he and Claire end up together. And then he and Claire end up together, which is... I don't know how I feel about that, but... Um, but you also understand from what he eventually shares with the group that he is coming from an abusive home. A home where his father... Puts out cigarettes on his yes, arm. like, gives him cigar burns and beats his mother and verbally abuses them as well. And, like, it's just very real to, to not excuse what Bender does. He gets criticized by all of the characters for his meanness and his unkindness and his cruelty, but... We also understand this person and why they have the persona they do, why they might be so jaded, why they might be so drawn to unkindness as a way to deal with the pain that they're experiencing. And it allows the others to start sharing the things going on in their life. Brian is this nerd, very easygoing kid, very, you know, he, he follows okay. instructions well. And, and, and yet you learn about how that academic pressure from his parents led him to want to commit suicide yeah it's awful and you understand him by the end of the movie when he makes and that revelation especially when he is failing a class that he took because he thought it would be easy now okay look claire and bender are not ending up together um i think that andrew i would love to watch breakfast club too that just follows their <laughs> like the next two weeks in their life like claire comes to her rich girl senses a week later <laughs> look andrew and allison i think there is hope for them but I think Andrew would get embarrassed of her because Allison hides her emotions. She would be like, it's okay. And then he would come to understand that he needs her in his life. I think there's hope for them. <laughs> Brian eventually ends up with Claire. <laughs> After they both go to college, they end up at the same university. Brian gets his braces off and he's looking really handsome. Yeah. And Claire realizes, oh, he's double majoring in economics and finance. And he's he, going to make so much money. <laughs> he's going to make so much money. And he's also a total nerd who's going to never, ever cheat on me or ruin our family if we have one. Oh, yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> now, Bender, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know how Bender ends. I'll tell you what happens to Bender. Tell me what happens to Bender. Um, it's been suggested by Mr. Vernon, the, the teacher who hates him, that Bender will end up in prison someday and, and tells the other students to look at him five years later if you want an example of how not to live your life. Here's what happens to Bender. Bender graduates. He he gets B's and C's, but he graduates. Does he graduate? Bender graduates. Okay. This is, this is the 80s. You okay. know, it's like it's suburban still. His parents, working class parents, were like, I, you know, abusive dad is like, I provided for you. You're not going to get your damn high school degree. So Bender gets his degree. Okay. But then Bender gets a job working with his hands. He either goes to technical school and learns a trade, or he just starts working at a garage somewhere and picks it up. And he stays in that town and dies in that town at some point. But that's what he does. And he, he lives a quiet suburban life. He, he takes the house from his parents after they inevitably pass. And that's he, what he does. He... I don't really think he gets married, but he does end up having children. Bender, Bender, Bender does get married. 
married. And who does get married. And they have they have kids, and she's like she is very similar to him in personality, and they end up splitting up when their their first or second kid is like a, he's, a baby. He's he's a much better father, but he still doesn't know how to understand his kids. Like he'll yeah. still yell at them because yeah. he just doesn't know how to ask them how their emotions are going. Yeah, John Bender's not going to therapy and he's not breaking generational traumas. But <laughs> right, right, right. That 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 Noah Khan lyric, I'm still angry at my parents for what their parents did to them. That's his kids. <laughs> that's that's John Bender's kids that's John Bender's kids um well I'm glad that we now know the future um let's see eventually there will be a civil suit brought up against Mr. Vernon oh absolutely like Vernon he does not retire a teacher he gets fired (laughs) he doesn't go to jail he gets fired yeah he just gets fired and he he gets a job where he does not make thirty one thousand dollars a year he's he's making like 20 you know he, he has to settle for something and he always talks about John Bender and how much he hates that kid because he got him fired. Um, the, the, so the actual Breakfast Club, and like the future <laughs> of, of these of these students. I mean, it's, what's fun about it is that we haven't really talked a ton about the movie itself, but about like what it makes you think. Almost. This there's this movie. It, it, it's almost like this premise would be the would be great for a TV show of people who just see each other at detention every single week. Or something because I mean, um, a a a mentor once told me if you're gonna focus on plot, make a movie. If you're gonna focus on character, make a TV show because because you get to see them. You get to, these are the people you would want to hang out with them. I mean, you know, like friends. What's the plot to friends? It's out of the fact that Ross and Rachel get to get there and then break up and then get back together and then if yeah. they were on a break and then get back together. No yeah, sitcoms were not meant to be plot heavy. Um. It's 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 so cool that so many of these scenes are memorable despite the plot not being there. I mean, even if you have not seen this movie, you know Bender pumping his fist at the end. That freeze frame, which let me tell you, I don't know how he did it, but John Hughes must have had it in his contract that all my movies end in a freeze frame. Because Uncle Buck ends in a freeze frame, 16 Candles ends in a freeze frame, Mr. Mom ends in a freeze frame. Ferris Bueller's Day Off does not. Okay. It there ends with go. Matthew Broderick looking at the camera saying, what, you're still here? Yeah. Do you remember that? Well, that's after the credits. That's a little post-credits. Okay. So we have, to, we have to go back and check. Um, <laughs> now, the 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 when the 80s music is playing and they're just dancing on the, on like the still, or when Bender is being yelled at by Vernon and saying, six detention, seven <laughs> <laughs> that might might be the best individual like you can't really call it a scene but like the best individual moment in the movie where <laughs> where Vernon comes in and starts reading the riot act to Bender and giving him more attentions and you can just tell that he doesn't care <laughs> like uh, it's it's or so funny when when Andrew starts taking all of the food out of his lunch bag oh my gosh Andrew being a wrestler who has a meet coming up the following week and needs to make weight is bringing up like what, three sandwiches, sandwiches a whole gallon of milk, milk. oh man <laughs> he needs Go to get it hey I'm I'm someone who bought a scale so that I could uh, uh, I've been on like a diet workout regimen and I've told you that I, I don't know if I ever told you this I bought a scale so I could weigh how much chicken I have and I only eat chicken now because it has more protein than any other food. <laughs> um, oh, what was I gonna say about this movie? Um, it's a it's it's a fantastic movie, and we recommend it. <laughs> it is a fantastic movie. We recommend it. Um, what would you what, what what are you giving this out of five? 
Uh, I mean, this is for me. This is like a four star movie, and okay. I, I give Ferris Bueller the edge. So it's it's number one for John Hughes for me, much like it is for you. I think for me with the Breakfast Club, I think it fumbles the ending a little bit, and I think the need to pair off four of the kids just okay. like, frankly doesn't make sense, and it, it's like a, it's. It, like, sinks the end of the movie for me. It feels like none of these kids should have paired up. They all sort of just, like, had mutual respect for each other. Okay. And, and especially Claire and Bender. Like, Bender spends the entire movie sexually harassing Claire. And I'm not going to say that, like, this movie should be canceled. There's actually a really interesting um, piece in The New Yorker from Molly Ringwald writing about and reflecting on her experience with this movie in the years since, and especially in, like, a post-Me Too era, How Do We Think About The Breakfast Club?, um, she has some really interesting things to say about it. And obviously, I don't think this movie should be cancelled or anything like that. I think any, like, blemishes, like, the way that... I mean, Bender has a couple moments of special that are, like, very aggressive with Claire in, in, in uncomfortable ways. I think that adds to his character and the drama of the movie. I don't think it's worth, like, selling my Criterion DVD or whatever. Um, but I do think that, like, it doesn't really make sense for them to end up together. Because I don't see what is drawing Claire to this guy romantically. I certainly think that she can start to respect and appreciate him as a fellow high school student at Shermer High. But I don't see why they need to end up in a romantic relationship. Um, especially after the way that he's treated her throughout this entire day. Okay, so Claire gets detention because she skips school to go shopping. Andrew gets detention because he beat up another kid and taped his butt cheeks together. <laughs> that That is such like a heartbreaking speech and yet also... He goes, yeah, you know, he's, like, really hairy. <laughs> All the hair on his butt. Brian gets attention because he brought a flare gun to school. And it went off, off in his locker. And he was intending to hurt himself with it. Um, Allison gets attention because she had she doesn't get attention. She just had <laughs> nothing better to do, so she shows up to detention. And which Bender, is amazing. Yeah, great great little reveal at the end of the movie. And Bender gets attention for pulling the fire alarm, I think, yeah. is, is what he does. Uh, but also, it could have been anything because he's always had detention. Yeah. Now, um... We, Claire definitely looks down on Bender as they all do at the end of the movie, and it's one of those. I think he also finds she also finds him to be so different, and I'm gonna use a um I'm gonna use an interesting term. I think she finds him to be interesting, and you know one of those, man, I'm just so much better than you. Let's date kind of a way. I I think. That is my, or how my mind views them getting together at the end. I mean, I think the connecting point is that, like, each of these kids has their own journey that they're on. Yes. And Claire's is about how she's, like, she's the rich girl, she's uptight, she's a tease, and she's sort of learning to loosen up and be more, like, open to other people, I guess. And but Bender is this, like, chaotic <laughs> villain who enters her life. She's and also that's what attracts her to him. Being used by her parents. Yes. And so she does not... Her parents are not physically abusive to her the way that they are to Bender. And yet there is definitely that connection between all of their parents. Even Alice... Uh, honestly, Allison's like an interesting key to so much of this because she goes... Uh, they ask her, what did your parents do? And she goes, they ignore me. Um, which is which is just such a... Like, a, a, a heart-wrenching line from it. Especially considering she says so little throughout the movie. She says so little throughout the movie. Now, Andrew and uh, Andrew and Allison getting together, that's just funny. 
That's just funny. As soon as she gets the makeover, he's like, let's, let's go. Let's go. I will say, one thing I love about these five teenagers is even before they all kind of bond and become friends, there's some degree of solidarity between them. Where whenever, no matter how angrily and violently they're arguing, whenever Vernon enters the room, they all start lying like they're it's their last day. They're, they're all taking care of each other. They're they not take care snitching. of Bender, even when Bender's a total jerk to all of them. Total jerk. <laughs> it's a great bit, and, and I love that moment. Those moments of teenage solidarity in the face of a loser teacher trying to assert his dominance over them. It's a great little bit uh, about these five people, both at the very beginning of the movie and near the very end. As someone whose plane is boarding in an hour, I think we should wrap I think we should do somewhat was, quickly. I I, there's so much more we could say about this movie, but we but that's every go. single week. We I mean, have so much we could say. Yeah, week. but like most weeks, we're just trying to like not stick you with producing a too long podcast episode. This week, you quite literally need to catch a flight. So, folks, that is the Breakfast Club. Strongly recommended by both of us, more so by Christian than me, still. But it is on Netflix when you get this episode. Go watch it, and then if it's gone by the time you listen. Just keep an eye out. It will probably end up on another streaming service sometime soon. Christian, mm-hmm. I helped curate our uh, our monthly keg here for Modern High School Movies. What's coming up in October? Okay. In October, we are going to be talking about horror movies. It's kind of become an October staple, except one year when we did it in September. I don't know if that was last year or the year before, but we're going to be talking about horror movies. For this month, we, we've actually covered a lot of high-profile movies this year, and that is our prerogative to some extent. But for this month, I think that horror movies are the best to look at. What is um, what is lesser seen? And so I have chosen to look at lesser seen supernatural slash occult horror movies. And all three of these, I, I guess not a ton of people have seen all of them, but uh, they definitely have their cult followings. And all three of them, I believe, are not American. One is Canadian, I think. One is Japanese. And one is from either Australia or New Zealand. I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, and so we will, we will start by watching... The Changeling, which as of right now is streaming on Peacock with ads, so you will not need to pay anything if you are going to if you're going to see it. And here, so that you know, and I will put this on our Excel sheet, um, <laughs> at the at the end of the month, we are going to be doing the Untapped Keg episode where we will be looking at and recommending lesser seen horror movies. So you will bring some, I will bring some as well. But the goal is, you know, we're not going to be talking about Halloween or the Halloween franchise. We're not going to be talking about the Friday the 13th franchise. We're going to be seeing, oh man, what is this random demonic movie? <laughs> Love random demonic movies. <laughs> I'm really excited about this blend, Christian. I think, or not blend. We don't do blends anymore. I'm really excited about this rotation as we talk about some horror movies from around the world. It's going to be a really good time. I love talking horror in October, and we hope you follow along with us, listeners. So hit up Peacock with ads and watch The Changeling. Join it us is next Canadian. Week. It is Canadian. It is Canadian. It is that. That is not this country. We are. We live in the United States. And folks, until next time, thank you so much for listening. There are a few things that you can do to support the show. Number one, please do subscribe and leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners, and we do appreciate seeing those five star reviews come in. So please. 
do that, we greatly appreciate it. Number two, you can leave us an email at cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. We are regularly checking that inbox, looking for listener feedback. We'd love to see it, especially when you guys are able to submit movies that you like for a certain theme we're talking about, or if you have something you want us to cover, like we will change what we're talking about in a month if the listeners want to hear us talk about a certain movie. So send us your thoughts. It literally can determine the direction of the show to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? What is your favorite high school horror movie? Ooh, high school horror movie. Send us an email, listeners. The answer is scream. But send us an email, listeners. We'd love to see it. I mean, what what else would fall under the Halloween one? An absurd one? amount of movies. So many uh, high schoolers the get killed. The Babysitter, Friday the 13th. Oh, wow, They're all of college. them. Friday the 13th, they're in college? They're in college, I'm pretty sure. I thought some of the camp... Ca- it doesn't matter. Um, cool. <laughs> Until next time, folks, this has been Cinema on Tap. Thanks for listening.